There are people who could talk about mathematics all day. And now I thought, if that will be the topic of our program for a full hour on a Tuesday evening, would that be the most boring program or the most interesting program? Tonight, our guest is Gareth Thomas. And, and Gareth, I was amazed how many enthusiastic reactions you got when you said that you will be talking about your favorite topics, which is not only mathematics, but is also on raising kids and how to be the CEO of a startup in this uh, field. You love mathematics, I guess. Oh, yes, I definitely do. And it's a pleasure to be on the show, Jean-Paul. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and welcome to you. Uh, you are from South Africa and you came to the Eindhoven region. Uh, now you're the CEO of your own startup. Did you think, well, that's the place to, to, to have fun with mathematics or to, to do a startup? Or is there something that happens by accident that you came to the Netherlands, that you came to Eindhoven? So it's a fun story, which I think is maybe interesting for many of the listeners is they might relate to that. Um, so as you mentioned, indeed, I was born in South Africa uh, and I've traveled around the world. So at the age of three, I actually left South Africa to come and live in The Hague. I lived in The Hague for a year. And then um, after that, I went to live in Singapore for another year. After living in Singapore, I lived in Hong Kong for one year. Macau for three years, then I moved to Portugal, and that's where I actually did uh, most of my education, and I become an electrical engineer uh, coming out of Instituto Superior Técnico in Portugal. But after graduating, I wanted to spread my wings and fly. I had the travel bug inside of me, and I ended up working a couple of years in Scotland. And then uh, I met a woman on an airplane and came back to the Netherlands, as women have a tendency to change uh, our lives, or at least for my, my, my side. And um, I've been living in the Netherlands for the past 13 years. And she and was Dutch, or? Yeah, so, so the, the woman I met on the airplane indeed was Dutch, but, the, but that didn't pan out. And I married an Italian uh, here, in, here in Eindhoven, so mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's a small world. And I am very happy now in, in, in uh, this region, in Eindhoven, because I worked for a company called MathWorks. Uh, so this is the company that makes MATLAB for nearly 10 years. And I got hooked and was super passionate about everything around mathematics and computational thinking. And then at a certain moment, I decided to create my own company alongside uh, Yodic. And we... Um, created it here in the Eindhoven region because ultimately this area is a great place for startups. There's no lack of money, support, funding. Technically, it's thriving. And, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to learn Dutch to create your own company, which is a plus in my side. Um, but more than that, it's actually a, a wonderful vibe to collaborate with people and the high-tech campus is uh, full of i don't know 12,000 engineers and scientists and version bay being a consulting company for matlab and python it just made sense to be there and i know you know there's a big university here the tue great place lots of smart people coming out of that left right and center attracting talent from around the world so uh, you know i thought well If the, the Netherlands is a country, uh, most of it is underwater, you're under sea level, if you will. Talk about engineering challenges for a country, they, yet they overcome that and they've made the most of it. I think that's a nice inspirational place to create a company. Sounds, so very sounds, happy. sounds like a really thought through pitch for how nice it is to be in the Netherlands and to work for your company and so on. What I also, on the other hand, quite often notice is that children who have traveled all across the world have been in, uh, in, in China, in South Africa, in many other countries. Never really feel at home anywhere in the world. But it sounds like with 
not only your professional connections, but also the things you're doing in your spare time. You raise kids here, you are connected to the education of children. Sounds like you're more or less settled, if I say that in a typical British <laughs> statement uh, way. Well, uh, I think it's common for most expats. You know, you say, I'm just going to stay here one more year, right? And then that one year, it kind of propagates to another year. And ultimately, I am very happy here in the Netherlands and very happy to be raising my son. And I'm expecting a second one. So indeed, uh, I am feeling the magic of living in the Netherlands. I, I live in a small village on the outskirts of Eindhoven, Nunen. And actually, um, my opinion of the Dutch society changed dramatically when I moved to Nunen. So I was living in the city center of Eindhoven for many years. And then, you know, you can live in a bubble in the city centers. But uh, I have to say that now that I see the Dutch educational system for younger children, I am super impressed. And the life quality balance that the Dutch society has that most expats actually don't see if you don't live in these smaller villages is uh, very impressive, to say the least. What what makes the education system different from, in, for instance, compared to what you experienced in your edu education? Because I hear that more often and I also hear that when people make a choice, go to the international school or go to a local school and really mingle with the Dutch. Right. So to maybe make a, a simple example, which I think highlights it very nicely. So uh, my son, Nicholas, he's uh, going to the Kinderopfang, right? So, uh, And at the Kinderopfang, the kindergarten, they taught him when he was about two, how to put on a jacket by himself, right? So there's this magical moment where the teachers will lay the jacket on the floor and then children will put their hands in the sleeves and then they'll throw the jacket over their heads and they can dress themselves, right? So at a very young age, the teachers are in inspiring and incentivizing the kids to become independent. And where I am from in Portugal, that is actually not the case, right? So I, I spend most of my life in Portugal, so I consider myself Southern Mediterranean. And the culture and the society there is much more around young children. It's the responsibility for parents, teachers to do as much as possible for kids to protect them against all the things around them. Whereas here, it's very, very clear in many things that the idea is, no, let's try to get our kids to become independent as quickly as possible. And I think that is a wonderful ideology that uh, many people can learn. Um, I sometimes make this statement, I'm not sure whether you would agree to that, but um, there is this uh, law of conservation of number of accidents and my feeling sometimes is children make 100 accidents and the only role that you have as a parent is to let these accidents happen in a controlled way. <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> I like that idea of con controlling things. but. To, to, to yeah. be honest, um, you learn from mistakes. And I think that is a powerful statement, both for children, both for teenagers, adults, but uh, also running a company. So that's actually mm -hmm. one of the key lessons learned of running Version Bay. It's actually okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them. And the, the more you make, the stronger you become. So it's okay. Yeah. Now, you were with a large company, MathWorks, before. There, uh, the company does not immediately go bankrupt if you make a mistake. Um, I can imagine that particularly if you start your own company, one mistake and it's game over. Well, I think the way to think about it is uh, one mistake, game over, but maybe uh, you learn to learn faster from those mistakes, right? And actually in large companies, and MathWorks I think is just one example, I think it, this holds true for many companies, the culture is typically to 
make as less mistakes as possible and that is your route to promotion right so typically people will promote you through the ranks if you're dependable and you don't go do crazy things um, that being said in a startup doing crazy things is something uh, which couldn't be a good thing and you learn to see the world differently so I, I think it was a big mind shift that I had to go through from this idea of the corporate world of you know stability doing the right thing making sure that you know you do what you're supposed to do maybe choosing one battle every year to get your your ranks and get a bit of visibility make that count as opposed to in a startup or a small organization you know you can pivot you can change ideas and actually you can grow at a very fast pace uh, within reason. Um, that being said, as version bait grows, I also feel the pressure that uh, I don't want everybody making millions of mistakes everywhere around me. So I can understand how that evolves to larger companies. But it's an interesting journey to go through. Yeah, and I can imagine that uh, particularly during the education of entrepreneurs, it is really a major thing to discuss how many mistakes are you willing to 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 to, to make, particularly if we see the large companies here. Right. So I, I think um, the, the way I think about it is uh, I don't think in number of mistakes, I think in passion. So I believe that passion gets you through the good and the bad. And, you know, a mistake is just maybe a bad moment, but there's going to be good coming through. So uh, I, I, I think as long as you do things with the right intent, with a lot of passion, then that's all that you really need to kind of succeed. There may be something that you have to learn or that is a bit of a character, um, but it may also be a gender difference. You are a coach at a fee plus male tech heroes or a supporter uh, at, at least. And I can imagine that you also see that when you coach female entrepreneurs. Right. So um, the, the Female Tech Heroes is an organization in the Eindhoven, and it's all about promoting diversity, right, in the workspace. And unfortunately, uh, there are gender differences in the world. I mean, the engineering world, which I'm predominantly in, it is predominantly male-driven. But I do believe at the bottom of my heart that success comes from diversity. And it's not just male-female. It's not just gender, race, belief. I think diversity is what actually makes teams much stronger. And um, I'm, I'm married to someone who works in HR. So this is a topic which is very close to my my heart. But I, I, I do remember one of the pivoting moments in my career at, at actually at MathWorks, we did something which is called the, the DISC training, where it's kind of identifies different profiles, right? So it's not about male, female, gender, race, belief, but more about you as an individual and how you think and what you can say and how you should communicate with others to get things happening in a good way. And I never realized that there are these traits and certain ways of dealing with people that you can uh, learn. And once you recognize them, you can become much more productive. A simple example is I cannot start a meeting without some small chit chat about how life is going and I need to connect at some level. But I was very amazed that some of my management at the MathWorks was like straight to business. There is no time for chit chat. And once I recognized that that's their personality and they're not just doing it to annoy me, I began to respect and I could say, okay, so let's get to business straight away. And then it made things work better for both of us. So I think at the heart, teams benefit from diversity and recognizing that we're different and we work and interact differently, if we can adopt to each other, that actually makes a world of a difference. But I can imagine that Tichat has a great value in building teams and having a bit more of a personal relation that also makes the team work. So uh, what I feel is a bit the tension of, is there one golden way 
which is exactly the opposite of having diversity. And the example that you now gave is you adopted. Well, it, it, I think um, the way to think about it is I don't think there's one golden way. You know, teams are very different. We're all different. But I do think uh, in the back of my mind, I like getting the best out of everybody. And it takes a bit of getting used to to figure out what that is. And you mentioned earlier on that you, you, you speak to many people with diverse backgrounds. And I've traveled through many countries and lived many countries. I personally think the best gift my parents ever gave me was the possibility to be exposed to different cultures be that in Singapore, Hong Kong, Macau, Portugal, Scotland, that, uh, you know, you kind of learn to take the best from these different cultures and look for it. And it's not so much about, oh, I'm right, but more like, oh, how can I learn and leverage this information or this attitude from others? And then you carry that with you. So it's a, it's always a moving target. <laughs> What I noticed in the past, if, for instance, Philips Research was hiring someone, it was just looking for a person with great strength and then we find out what he will do more and more i see that these companies just hire for a task i want mm. to have someone who is excellent in python or in uh, who can do metric decompositions in matlab or do artificial intelligence and 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 so sometimes let's say paying less attention to uh, i want to have someone with a different attitude a different approach a different way of thinking so i never see if something like now i want to have an out-of-the-box thinker or someone who can really follow up on the commitments to have the opposite of the out-of-the-box so i think um the the way to think about it is it is hard to hire out-of-the-box thinkers because they're unpredictable in many ways and that is a scary thing so if you're you you're set to projects milestones deadlines predictability weighs into human nature a lot but i do think that uh companies that embrace a bit of this creativity and giving space for that creativity do thrive and i think google did a good job in saying you know i will hire people to do their job four days a week but we'll give them that one day to do whatever they want and they can express their creativity in whichever they want and actually what happens is it's not that everybody follows through that suit it's a small percentage of people that they already had in house that they didn't know had that inside of them and you're really just giving space to uh, let people spread their wings and follow their passions that maybe at the time when they were hired it wasn't very clear that they had these hidden passions within so i think that attitude i think is a more modern way of looking at things could be a, a way to get more results and value but it is a bit of a contradiction to how historically things have been done although there is a long tradition of het vrijdagmiddag experiment i hope ah, you understand yes. enough yeah. Dutch of that eh? <laughs> in the, the research labs here where you give some uh, freedom some uh, creativity some uh, room for strange ideas on the other hand we see that many organizations are let's say iso certified work uh, according to a lot of principles and uh, ways of process management i can imagine that you on one end want to streamline your organization even in a research lab even in a startup and at the same time control the uncontrollables yeah so so when you say that i i one case that comes to mind is um when i was living in scotland i was astounded that there are certain places where the speed limit was very low like 30 30 kilometers an hour or something so the speed limit was very low and if you ask people well why is the speed limit so low and the idea behind that is you know it's safer if everybody travels at the lowest speed life is good we can control this less accidents will happen but then if you go down to i don't know india in any large city in india there are no 
no speed limits and uh, there are actually also very little accidents and it's perfectly safe, right? So you could say on one extreme, structure enables people to achieve a goal, but I also believe in many cases you can also enable uh, and empower a little bit of uh, creativity or chaos to achieve the same result. And uh, you, you're right that um, there are different ways of doing that, but um, I think every company has its own DNA and that's up to the leadership and the DNA of the companies to kind of flourish. And people who fit in a certain DNA and culture tend to find that. And if they're not happy with it, they tend to move on. So, you know, there is not one way that makes this work. <laughs> Surprisingly, when I started the interview, I just had the attitude we start to chat about you and your organization and we see where it ends and now I suddenly realize that I'm talking to someone who earns his money in mathematics and what we have been talking about is the social aspects in your company and how the different characters work together. That's nothing for a mathematician. <laughs> so so it is, uh, my, my, my core uh, love is actually maths. I've always liked it and, and maybe a reason why. Uh, so my name is Gareth, right? So um, my parents gave me the name Gareth because they're both mathematicians. They're both math Olympiads champions in different countries. So my mother's from Zimbabwe. My father's from Zambia. But they said, you know, we want to give our son a name which uh, letter starts in the first quarter of the alphabet because if it begins at an A, everyone's always scared to be the first. You don't want to be at the end. So they kind of decided on G being a letter in the first quarter of the alphabet and they also said they wanted a name that would trigger conversation so being from South Africa Gareth is a Welsh name they wanted a conversation starter so um, uh, I've had maths ingrained in me since I was before I was born uh, and, and you can take that as a good or, or a bad example of my upbringing <laughs> mm -hmm. what I'm also surprised of and maybe we can chat about names and I can ask you what your son's name is and then see how that uh, propagates Um, but on the other hand, the way mathematics is being taught in uh, elementary schools, in um, uh, high school, is like, dit zijn de exacte vakken. You calculate something and the outcome is pi or 3.5. or And it sounds like everything is very rigid and so on. But all the mathematicians, maybe not all, but most of the mathematicians that I know have a lot of intuition. They think, mm. well, it will be something like pi, I may be a factor of two off, but, uh, and, and, and that way of approaching even subjects that sound like very rigid require people with imagination, with creativity, who think out of the box, who basically don't wind up to prove first before they believe something, but they first have an idea about a theorem or... Uh, right. So, so indeed, you're right, um, and I'm a I'm a strong believer the way that education systems are set up today. I actually don't think it's the right way of learning maths, right? Because, uh, for example, if you study maths and you only get like 60% correct of your thing, so your understanding is actually only 60%, and then the next year you also get 60%. But this compound knowledge is actually not a good thing. So you, you need to kind of 
uh, learn and understand the fundamentals to kind of get that intuition and explore it. And there's actually no shortcuts. And the idea that everybody's the same and they will all progress at the same time, I actually think is a counterproductive way of learning, not just math, but many subjects as such. And maybe to give you an example, um, one of my physics teachers, they, they called out and said, oh, you know, this is 10 newtons, right? And he's explained the concept of force and newtons. And then I remember kind of asking, well, how hard do I need to hit a table to generate 10 newtons, right? And then this is a weird thing, right, to what you're saying is, I can't measure that myself. I don't, it's hard to measure that. And if we don't have that understanding on simple things, then it makes it harder to, to you know, get to the core essence and become more creative. So I, I indeed agree with you that um, learning maths is a difficult and intuition plays a fundamental role. And I think it's our role as educators to trigger people's curiosity instead of just saying, get the right answer. Do you know your times table? Yes or no kind of thing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I also see that in uh, Dutch education, um, sometimes it's more a matter of uh, understanding texts, uh, uh, mathematical problems described in a very woolly textual way, um, rather than just give me the roots of this second order polynomial. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just to scare off some of the listeners, but I'm now intentionally just using something from, <laughs> from mathematics. But, but I do have a fun story for you, Jean-Paul. So um, when I was in Macau, right, I was um, I was the age of seven, seven to ten, and I was in a Macau was a Portuguese uh, belonged to Portugal. So half of the country actually spoke uh, Portuguese, and the other half spoke Cantonese. And my school, primary school, was a Portuguese primary school, but half of my class was Portuguese, and the other half was Canton speaking Cantonese. At the time, I couldn't speak either or. And I was failing all my subjects with the exception of one, which was math. So I was so happy that the math was the universal language. And I've really picked up that actually uh, by communicating and understanding numbers, it is possible to get things done. And I kind of like the idea at a young age that, oh, this is my way of understanding the world. Um, and, and you're right. There are different problems that people kind of articulate. But um, I also remember uh, thinking about, you know, if you have, give someone a problem of saying, okay, you've got 15 apples and you want to share it with three people, how many apples does each person get, right? And most kids will kind of do that math pretty easy. But I think it's a much more interesting question if students would say, well, are those three people in the same room or is one of them in another country or, you know, are... Are all three people just as hungry? Did someone skip lunch or breakfast? So I think there's other elements around mass to kind of trigger curiosity because sometimes problem definition, it's not, most problems are not defined in the right way. And if you change the problem statement, interesting things can happen. Yeah, that's a very interesting statement. And I think a lot of invention come exactly from uh, from this. But I guess at school, you are the, the spoiler in the class. If you uh, are asked to divide 15 by three, and then you say, are these people in the same country? <laughs> yeah, so, so people laugh at you, right? But, but that's actually a bad thing, right? So you should actually, at least in my opinion, I would actually give more credit to that person who stood up and asked that question uh, as opposed to what probably happens is you laugh at the person like, what are you talking about? That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a bit of where social pressure plays a big role in education, uh, but also in, uh, in environments, whatever we do, right? Um, so also I felt it when I started Version Bay, 
I, I felt social pressure because people said, hey, Gareth, you're on a good job, good company. Why throw that away? Are you absolutely crazy? You're about to become a dad. This makes no sense whatsoever. And the social pressure kind of is there and it influences the way we think. And I think what is a good thing in general and a criteria, at least in my opinion, for being a good dad is to enable people to follow their dreams and to follow your dreams. Sometimes you need to ignore that social pressure uh, from other parents or grandparents or close friends as we're all different. Mm -hmm. You started version B. I still struggle. I, I know the mission statement, but I still struggle with how you sell that. You help organizations, you help people to upgrade their software. Yes. So maybe I can clarify this. So um, uh, we are a company with a mission statement to empower people to leverage state-of-the-art software stacks. And what does this mean? It means that we basically help people who use MATLAB and Python to bring their code to newer versions. So you may or may not know this, but for example, MATLAB, every six months, there's a new release. And the MathWorks is 122 toolboxes. And just MATLAB alone has at least two to 300 changes every six months. So this ultimately has huge ramifications because if you're building a car or an aeroplane, lithography machine and lives are at stake, the numerics, they have to be the same, right? And the faster you design products, you kind of want to set certain things in, in stone. And typically people choose to set their software environment and say, okay, we're going to lock it down. It makes it easier for processing, for auditing, for safety, for regulations and so forth. But the flip side of that is, you know, there's all these new cool functionality appearing because, you know, MathWorks has got thousands of people programming to make life better. The same thing could be said for Python, which is even at a bigger scale with all the packages changing on a daily basis. You want to have a process in place to ensure that the numerics hold true across any uh, version, right? Because software will change. There will be a new version of Python, a new version of Pandas or NumPy. And what you really want to do is if you're making decisions based on the results, you want to make sure that those results hold true as new versions appear. And often domain experts who are deep knowledgeable in a specific area and not computer programming often forget about that. So version Bay kind of aims to reduce the risk and quantify the value of going to a newer version, be that speed, performance, numerical accuracy, and or what is the effort needed to get to a new version. Sounds like a wonderful story, but at the same time, I cannot resist sitting you behind a computer crawling through many lines of codes in what the heck changed between Windows 95 and the later generations of Windows. And you try to get all software written for the wrong platform still uh, um, up and running. And to, I mean, many large organizations, our tech system, the way we control water flows, railway systems are built on a certain platform. These platforms change constantly, but there are so many specific things deeply in that software that you must basically be crawling through code written by someone else that's not understandable. And, or is there a generic way where you can just lean back and say, our system will do this automatically for you? So we have got some smart things in there. So we've done this enough times to automate parts of it. Uh, we, we don't automate it 100% of the time. But ultimately, what we see ourselves as a bit of a, a crossbreed of domain experts and strong computational skills. And what we kind of do is just help with regression testing, right? So does the numerics hold true in one version? If you run the same code in a new version, do you numerically get the same results, yes or no? 
And then if you put that in place, you can actually say, okay, if there's a new version, they're not the same. Let's go and pinpoint exactly where things break. Now, usually what happens is people don't think about tests and they just, you know, write one large program script, never test it. Then it becomes a little bit difficult. But the computer scientists learn and the whole DevOps world and methodology, it kind of has shown that you can change things quickly, check if it works, and then go to production very quickly. Just um, maybe an, uh, an electrical engineer or mechanical engineer, a mathematician, a physicist, they haven't been brought up with these concepts and they kind of use programming as a means to an end to kind of derive an insight. But the idea of will this insight hold true for the next five years and did I program it in such a way that that will be okay, that is often a secondary thought. So we kind of come into play helping those domain experts, understanding what they do and put that process and methodology in place. So your customers are the end customers that using the users of software or wouldn't it be MathWorks which, which wants to take some responsibility or offer it as a service? I can imagine that with this story you still struggle to see where you want to get your cash. Well, so we actually um, thrive off the MathWorks ecosystem, right? So there's many, many uh, customers in the in the Benelux world, right? So, so that makes life easy. Um, MathWorks is predominantly a software company. So they sell software. Most of their revenue comes from software. They do have a service business, but it is not their primary source of income. And they typically use their services as a means to upsell more products. This then in turn generates a nice opportunity for a service uh, company such as Version Bay to help on the MathWorks ecosystem. The same can also be said for Python, right? So Python is a free environment. People can use it. But when people use open, software, uh, open source, it is very common at a business level that then money shifts away from spending on licensing, but then goes to spending it maybe on people and services uh, coupled to that. So in that sense, um, there's plenty of opportunity. So the quicker and faster MATLAB and Python grow, the more opportunity there is for us. And I, I did a quick research the other day. It's uh, Python, I think, is according to the TOB, so which is also a Dutch company, is the second most popular language in the world. And MATLAB is number 16. Uh, curious fact, I think that's the first commercial language on the in the top 20. So in that sense, we're in a nice space to be. And we know all the MathWorks customers. We organize meetups and we build communities around MATLAB and Python. So it's actually quite easy to see where people are struggling. And, you know, it's often the simple things that catch people off guard. Um, and we can help and add value there. Yeah. And you come in after the company had a security breach or after someone stopped something stopped working or so on. I can't imagine that this is really a kind of sorry moment that companies said, oh, I should have done this long before. Yes. So, so there is there is that use case. It's not the only use case, but indeed that is a catalyst. Um, the other catalyst is actually something which is called technical debt, which is an interesting concept that, you know, if you write code and you have technical knowledge, and if you never look at it ever again, it kind of gains interest and you pay the cost later on the next time you want to use it, right? So companies which are conscious of technical debt, they also will see that uh, this is a good thing to put in place and that also accelerates our business. 
Um, the other part of it is also just helping with the documentation. So putting tests around things and having a better testing infrastructure, people uh, will uh, pay for that because often if you have to be audited or if it's safety critical, there are additional processes that need to be put in place that the domain experts typically uh, are not aware. And, you know, this is where we can add value. Mm -hmm. Just talking about the business of software in general, I can imagine that it's very tempting for large companies to outsource a lot of their software because software writers are expensive, there are a lot of specialities and you just want to have a problem solved. So you ask a consultant to type your code. But on the other hand, a lot of the, the competitive advantage, a lot of the knowledge, the intellectual property of a company is in the software. Do you have an opinion on, 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 on whether the startups or the larger companies uh, do this in the right way? I mean, I cannot imagine that ASML just asks a bunch of external consultants to write their code for a wafer step. Right. So I actually think the, the MathWorks has done something which is pretty cool um, and is something called automatic code generation, right? So there's this idea that you can program in a higher level language, you push a button and you generate C code out of that be that C, C++, VHDL, uh, structured text. And this is something which is a, almost an analogy of, you know, you have C, you put it, give it to a compiler, and then it goes on an embedded system. So MathWorks has got a tool chain, and it, they're not the only company that do it. There are a few other ones that do that, that they kind of say, let's enable people to generate code automatically so that you can have quicker design flows, you can find errors sooner, and you don't necessarily need to hand over um, sketchy requirements and you minimize these iterations between other different countries and consultants. You clearly still need the consultants and embedded device uh, programmers, but you can maybe um, enable them to focus on things that they're really good at and the mathematics, right, so the core essence of a Kalman filter or something like that, you know, it's hard to give a Kalman filter to someone who's never heard of the Kalman filter and it's easy to make a mistake and that, that, that leads to uh, expensive errors downstream. But if you can push a button and you get a C code of a Kalman filter that works exactly the same in C or an FPGA as it did in MATLAB, now you're onto something powerful. And I think that the future of software in general is as software systems get more and more complex, unavoidably people need to climb up into abstraction layers and the transformation from one language to another becomes a very powerful tool. And I think that is really the future of where things are going. I mean, you can look at a car, it's got about 200 million lines of code in there. It's crazy to think that people have to write for every new car another 200 million lines of code and not make a mistake out there, right? So naturally, companies have to uh, optimize and automate parts of that code generation element. And I think that is where the future is. Still interesting if I hear you approach this very much from the technical side. There must have been a moment that you decided to start your own company. Maybe you already had a set of customers and they were very eager to get your services and uh, your old company didn't want that. But you had to make this step and you already mentioned a bit, well, you, you lose the security of having your job. Well, maybe you have a spouse who is earning the money then in case something fails but still uh, there must be many decisions there to to make that step and to see to be confident of your customer base right so um many people ask me well wh why did i 
why did I create Version Bay alongside with Iotic? Uh, well, there were really three reasons. So reason number one is I truly believe in embracing change. So, you know, it also holds true for expats. When you go to a new country at the time, you really don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that you're doing. But then if you ask uh, in hindsight, was that a good idea? Most people will say that was the best thing ever. And at the time, I had no idea what I was doing, but I still did it, right? So I think that element of triggering change and going outside your comfort zone if we never stop doing that, that is a bit scary. So I wanted to embrace that change. And uh, at the time, I thought, I'm not sure if this thing of creating a new company is going to be better or worse. But now, three years later, I'm convinced it was the best thing to do. So embracing change was one. Two was uh, I'd been working in MathWorks for about 10 years. And I think anybody who's worked in the same company for a while will recognize as you grow in a company, you believe you have more authority or rights or your opinion should count more, right? But if that doesn't match your level in the organization and your influence, it can actually lead to a place where you get frustrated and you either make your peace with it and you say, okay, this is the way things are and I'll be happy. Or... Um, you seek to understand the rules and you try to change things wherever you can, or you then just kind of say, okay, then this is not the place for me and it's time to do something new. And I found myself um, a bit in the category of if I had to continue growing in the MathWorks, I would have had to change countries and I wasn't up for that. So decided, you know, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and create my own company. And now I better understand some of those discussions I had internally of why people turned down my ideas. Because at the time it was like, oh, this is, I don't understand. <laughs> money's not a problem. We should just do this. But, you know, there, there's often your, your perception changes when it's your own money. And the third reason why I uh, started Version Bay was um, actually the most important one was to be an example for my son. So I really believe uh, in my empowering and helping my son follow his dreams. And I think it's a little sad that if I don't do that myself, how can I tell my son to do that? And I've always had this little idea in the back of my head to create a company, but it's easy to find excuses. So, you know, when you've got a good job and life is going well, it's super easy to find excuses not to do something. And my son was a true catalyst for me. And from the moment he was born, I kind of changed my perception and said, no, I'm going to also follow my dreams so that I can show him how it's done. On Radio for BrainPod tonight, Garrett Thomas. And his statement is, to qualify as a dad, you need to start your own company and become CEO of it. <laughs> It's a, I would say following passion, empowering kids to follow their dreams is the way to do it. Yeah. My dream, I, I wanted to create a company and here we go. <laughs> It is also very interesting that you were um, describing that process of being longer in a company and getting a bit frustrated. I remember stories about the whole population of a large research lab and where you see sometimes that the senior people um, sometimes are very happy, but also sometimes, uh, let's say, uh, have a certain zuurgraad. I cannot say that you have the pH of a senior your researcher because there are always these moments that you think well this should have been a nice direction you see many times that the company makes certain changes which may not exactly fit your own uh, ideas um, but on the other hand it's embracing change but content wise I'm not so sure whether it was embracing change you were doing the same things but now it was your own money your own responsibility or did it really well, change to, to become uh, to have your own director's office and to become CEO? 
Well, so so what did change was my perception of the world, right? So um, when you're in a larger company, you're typically assigned a role and you fit into that bucket, right? You're either in sales, you're in marketing, you're a developer, you're a researcher, and those boundaries typically are very well defined, right? And I often in, inside the MathWorks, I wanted to uh, cross boundaries. So my nature is actually to cross those borders. And I was very much like, okay, I'm in sales, but I really can see how if marketing did something different, sales would be better. Oh, if I'm in development, if if development would embrace marketing, we would make a bigger win. So I was very much that person who wanted to uh, break down those boundaries. And in larger companies, that is typically uh, a harder thing to achieve. So by having my own company, that makes it much easier to understand the different departments and set the rules of how I would like to do it. Um, and the other thing which is also interesting is the MathWorks is run by a control engineer, right? So Jack, the CEO, he sees the company as um, uh, certain things that he can do and can't do. And he runs it like a feedback loop. So there's a, a step, so something he wants to achieve. Then there's a few parameters that he can tweak and tune his controller. There's a dynamic system, which is the world. There's a whole bunch of noise being injected in the wall. And all he can do is minimize the error and by tweaking those uh, parameters. And he runs the whole company like that. Now, that effectively is a nice way to do it. And Jack has done a wonderful job and it's a wonderful company. But I... I always was trying to uh, change that and create an exponential growth somewhere. I wanted to trigger change at a dramatic level. And, uh, you know, young, passionate people have these ideas. Uh, but, you know, there's always a, maybe a more senior, more wise person saying, you know, it's okay if we don't grow exponentially. Maybe I want to keep the DNA of my company and maybe I want to have a slow, steady growth. I don't need to grow at an exponential rate. Whereas I was like, no, if we can grow exponentially, we should do so, right? So that is a, at a certain moment, uh, different fundamentals, uh, a way of operating. And I think that was a bigger change for me. And I started Version Bay because I'm deeply passionate about technical computing, MATLAB, Python. So in that sense, I kept the knowledge that I had and acquired. And now I just kind of try different ideas at a quicker and faster pace, which is a pure, pure joy for me. And I get to help other people in, in ways that uh, I really would like to. Before we start to uh, discuss about this exponential growth and uh, you getting exponentially uh, richer, did I just hear a mathematical description of what an agile way is of writing computer? Is that you a control could, loop? With? Well, I think a control engineer could look at it like that, right? So it's a feedback loop, a reference, reference, a controller, a dynamic system, and you minimize the error, right? Yeah. And the quicker and faster you do it, the better everyone is. <laughs> and you can tweak control these, these. You can change it from an LQR to a PID. You know, there are different things you can do. <laughs> But for a control engineer, if there is exponential growth, he says the Balls are outside the zero circle. <laughs> it must be scary to have exponential growth there then. So, so it's, it's exactly. So that's a bit of why I think Jack, uh, for valid reasons, kind of um, uh, consciously chose not to grow faster than he did the company. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, and he's done successfully. But, uh, you know, young, ambitious people sometimes see the world differently. <laughs> What I noticed before is that uh, there are quite a number of large companies in the region and quite often new ideas come up there and uh, these companies quite often encourage to have these kind of ventures internally in the organization. What I always notice that um, if that venture does not grow to a turnover of 100 million in three years, then between quotes, Amsterdam is not interested. Hmm. 
yeah, the, the famous hockey stick, right? So yeah. uh, indeed, is that, is is that also the discussion that you have? Do you want to earn a 100 million company in a couple of years? So uh, Version Bay, by definition, being a service company, it is not necessarily going to hit that hockey stick effect, right? So if you think of investment, typically that huge hockey stick happens around a product or a different idea. If you're only selling uh, billable hours, that then you're only as good as the number of people you hire, right? And that is actually a, a bit of a, a, a risk, especially in the region where everybody's struggling to hire people, right? So you might say, well, that's maybe not a good uh, hockey stick effect. But what I do like the idea of is learning from these consulting engagements, working closer with customers. And the magical moment, at least in my eye, is um, having that personal touch and showing somebody something that they didn't know. And then there's a bit of a spark in their eyes or that magical view is like, oh, I didn't know that was possible. And now I become a little bit more productive. That actually is what fuels me. And it's not really the money that I, I care about. I, I care about helping other people. And the question is, how can I help m most people uh, with the same amount of time I have. Mm -hmm. So it is sometimes interesting to see that it would be very attractive to earn a company that does not have a turnover of 100 million. And uh, maybe that's the, the advantage of, of having your own uh, company. You also made a very interesting remark about um, hockey stick curves. On that, that, that's what many of the larger companies like to see or what the uh, venture capitalists also like to see. And services, because I constantly also hear, we need to go to services because that's where the money is being made. And selling light bulbs or selling uh, just uh, x-ray tubes is uh, selling them is not the business. Well, I think most companies go through phases, right? So if you're only a service company, you can be successful. If you're only a product company, you can also be successful. But I think somewhere in the middle is maybe a, a nice balance. And it depends a little bit on companies and probably their size and history, right? So um, uh, I think there is a wide variety of reasons to do any one of these business models. They're good examples in all categories. But what is important, at least in my mind, is people need to know in which business they are in and they need to be clear about it. So I think the challenge arrives if you are in a service company and you want to become a product company, but most people don't want that, then that causes friction, right? And then that means that the vision of the company is not clear. So people can have opinions of how to do things differently, but ultimately if the visions of the people and the leadership are not aligned, that I think is where um, confusion arises. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that Many of the companies who are good in making hardware constantly go more towards service uh, orientations. I had a chance to talk to the inventor of artificial intelligence, Professor Jan Lecun, the inventor of the neural network. I see you nodding yes. People on the radio <laughs> cannot see that. <laughs> you know him. But uh, he, he was in, uh, in Eindhoven a couple of years ago and I asked him, Mark Zuckerberg came to you and he said, Jan, what can you do to, um, with artificial intelligence to help Facebook? I asked him if someone in the Brainport region would ask you, how can uh, we do something with artificial intelligence? What would that be? And surprisingly, he said, go for the hardware. Go mm -hmm. for the electronics that do it. And he didn't say, well, also start to, to use the algorithms like everyone does because it is hype and you should uh, jump on the hype and just follow the crowd. Uh, is that more or less the same as stating what, what is the DNA, what are the, the nerves of your company and exploit that? 
Right. So, so I, I truly believe um, that um, the AI as such, these are algorithms. It's almost becoming a commodity, right? And we should look at it as a commodity. So you, to add value, you need to leverage that commodity. And I really agree that this region, hardware is the essence of it. So putting merging those two things together is probably the best place that uh, Eindhoven could achieve its goals quicker and faster. And building specific hardware for AI, I think, is a good example for that. Um, but I also think there's another thing that could also make a difference is um, preparing our children for what AI means, right? So academia is something that typically changes and slowly, typically, um, you know, courses at schools also change slowly. And I think this world is changing very quickly. And I think the way to get ahead of the game is also to create more awareness of this technology change, not only at the top tier universities, but coming down so that people coming into the universities have a higher knowledge and understanding of the world around them. I think that would also be a place for long term to make a difference. In this region, we have the BrainPod AI Kids Education How does Correct. that connect to what you just said? Because you are also active, actively engaged there. Correct. So uh, in the Brainport region, there's something called the Brainport Schools. This is a group of schools and they uh, every year set themes. And one of their themes this year is AI. And um, the goal of BIKE, the Brainport AI Kids Education, is just to create awareness for children and also the teachers of what is AI and how it impacts their lives in everyday use. In many cases, people have got no idea that they're actually using AI and they can't name it or don't understand what that means. And one of the things that we try to focus on is bias. So, for example, you know, If you are using AI in the healthcare environment, right, and if you've only got your data biased towards people who were smokers and you're making decisions based on people's data who are only smokers, if you get somebody who was a non-smoker, that artificial intelligence is actually got a bias and that can lead to dangerous places. So AI is very biased and you have to be very careful about that. And the same can also be said for um Uh, diversity and culture, right? So I think being aware of biasness is a fundamental thing and important when you talk about AI and, you know, explaining to a young child, you know, you know, when you say, hey, Google, give me something, what is actually happening? Or, hey, Siri, I think it's fundamentally important to understand how does Google or Apple recognize your voice and the results, how come they're different for every individual and what does that mean at a more a deeper level? And that is what Bike tries to do, create that awareness and help the teachers inspire and trigger curiosity in children so that they also understand that, you know, that you don't have to be a boy to learn AI and follow mathematics and also create a, a bigger diversity pool of talent. Mm -hmm. But that story about bias may not be the language that you use towards the kids. Correct, correct. We would not use that, we would not use that terminology with an 11-year-old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but what does it mean then? Uh, so I think um, uh, the idea of uh, culturally and being okay with differences is an important thing, right? And I think the Netherlands is a good example is there's a mixture of many different cultures coming together and kids accept that. But I, I also recognize that not every country in the world is like that. And I think there's an analogy between um, culturally accepting differences and being aware of it is also very important, not only at school, but also in the AI front. There's a strong analogy there. Mm -hmm. Still sounds like a very social story. 
I can imagine uh, when you talk about biases that uh, things like statistics, probability theory, notoriously difficult subject, well, the way you can make many intuitive mistakes between uh, false positives, false negatives. Uh, you, you do a corona test and you get a negative. <laughs> What does that mean? I mean, corona was an excellent example of so many things that relate to probability and statements that uh, I can imagine that... Uh, There may be moments to use examples of teaching this topic in a pretty serious way. So, so, so may, I, I fully agree. So I, I was very astounded to see how the different numbers were used and abused. So I think people can use statistics to prove any point, for better or for worse. Um, and I was astounded to see how most a lot of people don't understand it or truly understand it. And that actually reflects in many different fields. Um, and... And I think COVID, for one of the positive things, is maybe we'll have a probability boom, right? So there's not a baby boom, but maybe a probability boom. And who knows, we'll get a spike in people interested in mathematics uh, because of this. Um, but I, I, I also kind of would like to call out that probability and statistics, it's a very dangerous thing for people to understand. And one topic which is close to my heart is when my son was born, he was a little bit underweight, right? So slightly underweight. He was below the the, the average, right? He was the, the, in the first quartile. And that freaks out everybody. It's like, oh, and I'm like, but okay, so how big a difference is it? And it was just by a couple of grams, right? So it's a couple of grams and this freaks out everyone. It triggers a whole different chain of events from poor mommy and daddy and the grams org and activities. But then when you look at it and you say, but how did you actually measure my child's weight? And they have this very old mechanism where someone's holding a little rope and ba put the baby in a cloth and based on that. And I said, but when was the last time you calibrated this thing? And then the lady says, calibration, what is that, right? So that's kind of like a... <laughs> <laughs> having an understanding of like, okay, just because my son is a few grams light, this is not the end of the world if your weighing mechanism has not been calibrated in 10 years. <laughs> so anyway, um, just as an example to, you know, uh, there's mass and mass, and I think it's important to think a little bit more about that and hopefully COVID will trigger more people to follow mass and take statistics more seriously. There is a fun book and it is called How to Lie with Statistics. And it is full of anecdotes of phrasing something in a different way or let's say confusing what is the cause and what is the effect and just flipping mm. these uh, it's it's all uh, interesting stories and uh, maybe it's a bit more than just saying you like mathematics or not and the probability is just one half that you <laughs> <laughs> like it because there are two possibilities uh, I would like to uh, thank you very much for being on our radio program, Radio for Brainport Tuesday Talk, where we have been talking about a lot more things than, uh, than, than mathematics. What I should also say that on Wednesday evenings, you are now on our radio program with an hour of mathematics. What do you want to, 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 to teach or to achieve with your series of podcasts that is called Tangible Computing? So our podcast is about telling the stories of where computation meets the real world. And our ultimate goal is whoever listens to the podcast or the episode, that evening, that night, they go home and they 
trigger to think a little bit more about uh, how to make the world a little bit better. And, you know, it could be for the average person who's saying, hey, I learned something new. It could be for that university student or thinking, what do I do with these things? Why is math actually used? But ultimately, it is just to amplify the stories which are worth being told by technical people where computation plays a role in their day-to-day lives. Tangible computing. And I think if you search for that on LinkedIn, you will find the podcast created by Garrett Thomas and Andrew Rutgers. You can hear to uh, you can hear a new episode tomorrow evening on a Wednesday. Garrett, I would like to um, uh, thank you very much for being here. I will certainly remember your quote in order to qualify as a dad. You have to start your own company. <laughs> thank you very much for having me, Jean-Paul. Radio for Brain Poor. Seven four seven AM and DAB Plus. The expat station. From the city of Eidhoven.